The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Rosalie Luston. She's author of Dying in Dubai, a memoir of marriage, mourning, and the Middle East. Rosalie is an award-winning writer whose plays have been produced in New York and internationally. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Rosalie. Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. I'm excited to speak with you. All right. Well, obviously, this morning we're going to be talking about Dying in Dubai, your memoir. Um, it's quite a story. I want to, maybe my first question would be, why a memoir as opposed to, say, an autobiography, or why the choice of a memoir in telling your story? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, memoir as opposed to autobiography is, in a sense, more focused on a particular slice of that autobiography. Autobiography would be my whole life, and uh, memoir is just this particular slice uh, focusing on my marriage and clearly the loss of my spouse and what, all, what that entailed before, during, and after. So it's, uh, it's, memoir is a little more thematic in that sense. Well, let, given that, let's start with the story then, because this is, mm-hmm. I, would, I guess we would say, I mean, this is the story of your life or the a defining moment, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what, yeah, yeah. Um, start from the beginning, like you, and sort of give us a background in terms of yourself, your marriage, your family, so, and then we can get in specifically to what you've revealed to us in, the, in, your, in your memoir. Sure, sure. Um, well, um, my husband Jerry and I were married for about uh, 20-some years. We met at a bus stop at 82nd and 2nd Avenue in, Mo- in Manhattan, and we got married there two and a half years later. So we had quite a romantic beginning. Um, and uh, we, we have, had, have one son, Oliver, who is now 30. And um, at the time that Ollie was a senior in high school, Jerry, who was a an advertising copywriter, got a interesting offer of a job as a media consultant for El Arabiya in Dubai. Now, Jerry and I had never been apart at all, really, more than a couple of days for maybe business trips or, you know, family visit or something. Uh, and suddenly he gets this very huge offer to spend time in Dubai working, and it entailed his being there for three weeks on, coming home to New Jersey where we lived in Montclair for a couple of weeks and going back and forth. And so for for about three and a half years, while our son was in college, Jerry was working uh, in Dubai, and that uh, was a particular strain on our marriage, I must say, and it's clear in the book that that's uh, an important thread. Um, and, uh, you know, but it was also this huge opportunity that he had to take. 
my life was I was uh, an actress and a writer and a teacher, and I ran a nonprofit for writers. And at the time he took the job, not only was my son going to college, he was going to Dubai, uh, my Nonprofit was closing, and I was entering menopause. So it was, it was quite the free fall. You know, everything was changing, and not always in a good way. So it was a rough, uh, rough time. And then, unfortunately, uh, it was all of our senior year, midway through, when we got a call uh, that Jerry was in the hospital, not expected to live. And as it turned out, he'd had a brain aneurysm, which we did not know when we got on the Emirates Airline flight, which opens the book, uh, to fly over there, uh, my son and I. So you thought, I mean, in your mind, he was, while he was going back and forth, and he was back and forth to Dubai and, and New Jersey and Montclair, you thought he was healthy. I mean, you had no indication that he... Well, did, yeah, a brain you? aneurysm usually does not announce itself, unfortunately, until uh, someone is stricken. And... Um, Many people die instantly. He lived for a week, and that is cataloged in the book. Um, he was in the ICU in a Dubai hospital for a week. Still, again, very dire, but he was alive, and there were doctors saying, well, it's possible he could still wake up, but uh, that wasn't to be. Uh, so, no, it's, he had actually just had a huge physical in December for extra insurance, irony of ironies. And he passed with flying colors. So, you know, it's not something people check for. Uh, so totally doctors. unexpected. I mean, unexpected. Oh, yeah. Well, not, he, the, actually, the health uh, or his, his uh, incident, whatever, I mean, his, what happened mm-hmm. to him health-wise mm-hmm. would have been unexpected here in the United States. But then you go to Dubai. Mm-hmm. And I have been to mm-hmm. Dubai, so I'm picturing all this as, as you're describing mm-hmm. it. But uh, So you get to Dubai, and then that's a totally, completely different world. Uh, and everything that, as you say, as, as you write about in the book, is just, um, well, I don't want to say it. Not, you, you tell us, but it's it was um, kind of earth-shattering, I guess, right? I mean, the whole... Yes. Yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. Now, Dubai, um, I would say, the, for tourists and people reading about it in the news, think of Dubai as this glittering... Rodeo Drive on Mars City, where, you know, tons of money, big buildings, it's beautiful, there are beaches, you know. And they don't uh, see what we unfortunately had to face uh, after Jerry died, which is uh, the police state underbelly of it. And uh, unfortunately, we had to walk through, slog through that morass, which included, uh, you know, a visit to a Sharia court and... Uh, you know, dealing with all these police stations and dealing with the the Byzantine bureaucracy um, of a country that is ruled more by men than by law, meaning, you know, a judge can just say, well, I don't care if she's an American, we're going to look at her will in terms of Sharia, and that means every one of her, the male members in her family will have to show up in court and say, yes, she can inherit her husband's bank account. <laughs> so we had to bypass a lot of that, and that took, that took over a year, it, it, you know, even after the 15 days in Dubai, which comprised the first half of the book. Um, the thread of Dubai is still holding me um, as I'm trying to still deal with that, um, that aspect of things. So it was very so when you shocking. First got, when you got there, and he's in the hospital, 
Mm-hmm. Start with that, like specifically. So here you are, a mm-hmm. foreign country, obviously in mm-hmm. the Middle East. It's not, mm-hmm. you're not even a Western European country. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, did you, you sort of like, it seems to me you just came into the situation. You had no idea what was good. I mean, you know, you described generally what happened. But, okay, so you, you're there, you're taken to the hospital, mm-hmm. then what? Well, I will say even before we're taken to the hospital, yeah. we land. Uh-huh. My son, Oliver, her 21, has long hair uh-huh. <laughs> and was immediately pulled aside by um, security for uh, a, an interrogation in a separate room, um, you know, not strip searched, but he had to take his shoes off. They went through all his stuff. Meanwhile, we don't even know. We don't have a phone. We don't have any way to, co- to contact the person who's sitting outside waiting to drive us to the, to the hospital. We, don't, we still don't know if Jerry's alive or dead. And, we're, and, Jer- and immediately Oliver is going through this interrogation. And so that was, you know, right off the bat, um, shocking and upsetting. And, of course, they, they let him go and they let us go. And then we go to the hospital and, you know, run up the stairs past, again, you know, guards and police and run into the um, ICU where Jerry is hooked up to machines. And uh, we are told by the... Uh, doctor running the ICU in the, that evening that, uh, you know, we, are, we don't expect him to live, and he asks me what my religion is. I don't tell him I'm Jewish, uh-huh. and he says, well, you need to pray, and that's not what you want to hear from a doctor. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was shocking and, and disorienting and alienating, quite honestly. Were you terrified? Were you, were you terrified? Oh. I mean... Beyond terrified, yeah. I really think I was. I think I was in shock. I, 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 I knew I had to keep moving and functioning in some very basic level. But yes, it was. It was the most frightening thing I have ever been through. Certainly, Just to put us in a time frame, the date exactly. What year was it? Yes, it was January, the end of January, two thousand eight, and we got the call on January twentieth. And he died on January 27th. And uh, so it's been almost nine years uh, since Jerry's death. Well, when that happened, I mean, you know, he's going back and forth on business. I mean, he, Mm -hmm. there was none of this that you would, you hadn't discussed, I guess, like what would happen if he got sick in Dubai or, I mean, not that you necessarily would, but that wasn't something that was ever, you didn't think about it. How old was he? Well, he was very, he was young, he was 53, and, in, and, you know, the people in the hospital asked me, one of the few things they asked me was, how old is your husband? And I said, he's 53, and they went, oh, we thought he was 40, because he looked very young. He yeah. was a very young-looking 53, and very, you know, looked fit. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that, yes, we actually, I actually did say to him, when he got this job, now, you have to take care of yourself because Jerry, um, Jerry was an alcoholic. He was, had been sober for many years, many, many years, and he was in a good, good period when he got the job, but I was concerned. I said, you know, I don't want to go over there and see you in a hospital. I really did say that to him before he got the job, and it's in the book. Um, so... That is something that we dealt with. And in a more concrete way, 
Uh, and he assured me he wasn't going to drink there, but of course that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, we, he also, we also did try to uh, amend our will to include a very specific clause about the bank account that I was to inherit it so that we could protect, me, protect him, protect me uh, with money over there. That didn't count for much with the powers that be in Dubai. We still, I still had to hire a very expensive attorney to get this all straightened out because they didn't really, they weren't going to honor an American will. So, I mean, is that the case, like, in, in Dubai, I don't know if that, you're talking about 2008, which is mm-hmm. eight years later, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's the same, like, you know, I mean, because I'm like, you know, your story, I mean, is quite obviously, I hate to give away the whole story, but um, no, right. I always kind of wonder, like, you know, how your story can help others who are going to mm-hmm. find themselves in a very similar, or Hopefully not, but may find themselves mm-hmm. in a civil, similar situation. You know, and you have mm-hmm. s- different expectations, like you talk about. I mean, Dubai, you described it beautifully. It's this mm-hmm. gorgeous mm-hmm. city, and it's sort of like an mm-hmm. upscale Las Vegas type feeling, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. or Rodeo yeah. Drive, mm-hmm. but it's really not. And, no, um, no. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the practical side of it, uh, what would we have done differently practically in terms of money and accounts and that sort of thing. Well, one of the things we, I suppose, could have done, which I ended up having to do, was put the accounts in my name as well uh, from the beginning, uh, which would have entailed all kinds of paperwork and bureaucracy anyway. But, you know, had we done that, things would have been easier. Um, you know, I, can't, I would say, yeah, don't assume anything. Don't assume uh, that your, uh, that the laws that we uh, use here and, and honor here are going to apply in Dubai and, or in any Middle Eastern country or any country that, you know, has a whole different set of, of standards. So uh, that's just one practical thing. But, of course, my book is more than that. It's about uh, the path through grief and how does one navigate a terrible loss. And, uh, you know, I have some wisdom to share about that. I don't know if we yeah. want to go right into that or not. But, yeah, uh, I think yeah, we do. Yeah. I mean, okay, because yeah. now you're in a you. I mean, and, and a terrible a loss that obviously, I think it also a terrible loss that didn't uh, happen gradually, but it happened, mm-hmm. you know, which I think has, it's a little bit different than if things mm-hmm. happen gradually or you lose someone mm-hmm. gradually. Because what happened mm-hmm. was there were just layers and layers of things that became known to you, right, personally, yes. your marriage, um, mm-hmm. besides mm-hmm. all the, the, the legal mm-hmm. stuff and what was happening in this mm-hmm. foreign country. So mm-hmm. um, maybe just before we kind of leave, actually, the, the practical, you know, here you are and you suddenly mm-hmm. realize you have to abide by the Sharia laws, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Well, well, yes, until my lawyer found a way to circumvent them, but the, I, again, that took months and months and months while I was back in New Jersey, and we had to deal with that. But yes, there were layers of, uh, you know, I discovered things that I don't still to this day have full answers to, although I'm at peace with about Jerry's behavior there. There is the possibility that he was unfaithful to me. There is the possibility that he was drinking, which I'm pretty sure he was, Um, which was kind of less shocking to me than the uh, potential that he was having some kind of dalliance. And uh, I had to deal with those things 
by myself. You know, in any marriage, when you confront a difficulty involving behavior, you have to hash it out together. And everything we'd ever done, we hashed out together. It wasn't like Jerry and I didn't have our issues while he was alive, and we would always, you know, fight it out and negotiate it out and come to some kind of terms. But when somebody dies suddenly and there are un, unfinished threads and unfinished uh, issues, it's all on the living person, the living spouse, uh, to, to come to terms and to come to some kind of peace with them. And that is a lot of what the book is about. Uh, I was clearly, I mean, I deeply loved my husband. I know he loved me, whatever flaws he had and whatever flaws I had. But I had to... Um, except that there were things I wouldn't know and that there were stresses of his, that, that drove him to act in ways that I couldn't fully understand. And I had to come to some kind of peace with that. And, and that is something that I think would help a lot of people. You know, I say that Jerry's, and that our marriage was a real marriage, not a perfect one. And I think... You know, who has a perfect marriage? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Nobody I know, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can answer that question, yeah. yeah. So it's not a question of a perfect marriage. It's how you navigate the marriage. And then you're talking yes. about how you... And, and you've, you did it together. So now you're mm-hmm. found, you have to do it by yourself, and you're learning these kind of layers and layers of things about your mm-hmm. husband that you didn't know mm-hmm. in the context right. of a country that you don't know. So everything right. is... Yeah. So foreign how, foreign yeah. territory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what happened? I mean, start with some of those layers. Suddenly you realize, well, I mean, you're beginning to, I mean, here you are having to mm-hmm. figure out how you're going to just navigate doing what you need to do legally or at least start mm-hmm. to. But then mm-hmm. what happened as you began to kind of go begin to uncover those layers about Jerry and like yeah. what he had been doing? Not only you say personally, but in business, because there was a lot going on that you didn't know about. Ye- yeah, well, well, there was um, the business. Uh, I mean, there was a business deal. I think that might be what you're referring to. There was a, a business deal that had been pending, and it was one of the things beyond the day-to-day nine-to-five job that he had. He had a big business deal with some very wealthy people over there um, that he was uh, brokering and was supposed to get a, a percentage of if it came through. And, um, you know, it was a kind of a pipe dream. It was supposed to be our nest egg <laughs> later on. And, uh, you know, it was pretty clear to me once he died that uh, the people that he was involved with who strung me along as the widow, the wife, uh, we're not serious. I, I, I followed through as best I could, but I did get a sense that they really were going to honor this deal. And I honestly felt towards the end uh, of uh, that year when the deal really, when there was no deal and when my lawyer came to me and said, well, no, they're not even going to con- consider honoring anything because they're, they're pretending it didn't happen. Um, that, you know, this was another pipe dream that Jerry was chasing. And, uh, you know, that was, it, it was upsetting to me on a lot of levels, but oddly I was comforted by the fact that my husband didn't know, have to know that these people were dishonest, uh, that he would never know that, you know, that he would never realize. So you were having, like, you're the, as you said earlier, I mean, you had so many losses, like, I mean, Grief mm-hmm. and the, yeah, and um, 
disappointment. I mean, you might, mm-hmm. I guess there are lots of different feelings associated with all of this. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about, yeah. I mean, okay, now let's now the personal. Like you said, you know, you alluded to the fact, okay, that he may have been having an affair or many affairs or he was involved with other women, had no idea about I have that. No, yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't know for sure, and I did say to him, you know, when he floated an idea that we, you know, that maybe while we're doing this, and this had never been the case, during our marriage in in the States, this had never been one of my worries. Um, My husband and I were very close and and very passionate with each other. But I, you know, he said, well, you know, while we're over there, maybe we should have an open marriage. (laughs) I said, no way. And we went to a therapist and I said, you know, that's not who I am and you can't do that. And then later I said to him, well, if you do do something, don't tell me about it and use condoms. (laughs) You're a very practical person. Yeah, but that came back to bite me because then, you know, I discovered I discovered some condoms in his bathroom after his death that, you know, in his Dubai bathroom that I had to, you know, face the fact that, yeah, I don't know if he used things or used them or not. I don't know what he did. You know, I really don't know. So, again, it's unclear to me what actually happened, but the very thought of that was was devastating, and I knew I had given him permission, but it still wasn't okay. It still wasn't okay, so I had to, you know, cope with that. So here you, I mean, we're talking about, boy, I mean, this all this stuff is just being thrown at you. How did you, mm-hmm. how did you, I mean, how did you respond? How were you able to keep your, you know, this is kind of a trite, but head above water. I mean, like to be able mm-hmm. to, because it's all coming at you at once. Did I, mm-hmm. um and I guess the next, well, and this is another question, but, like, were you really surprised? Like, you just said, okay, you, you said, absolutely, I don't want an open marriage. That's not who I am, and that's mm-hmm. not what we want to mm-hmm. do. But, okay, if you do, so you kind of were giving him permission. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't mm-hmm. a complete surprise. Um, right, yeah. right, so right. Sur- well, okay, it wasn't a surprise, but it's still, on an emotional level, it, the idea, it still hurts. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, again, it wouldn't be what I wanted. And again, there's no proof. The, the part of this, the important part of this book to me in terms of how this could help other people is that no matter what your circumstances are, when someone dies suddenly, there'll be something that's un, there'll be things you don't know, there'll be things unsaid, uh, there'll, be, there'll, be, there'll be some thread, maybe not as dramatic as mine, but there will be something that you can't resolve with that person that you have to resolve on your own. And my way of doing it was to, you know, go back and read all of his love letters to me during the time he was in Dubai, which were really love emails, I have to say, Mm -hmm. um, was to, you know, piece together the whole marriage and to understand better about what kind of stress he was under and to find a way to, to forgive him and to forgive myself for not being there. I mean, I had no intention, and we agreed on this, of being across the ocean while my son was in college in the States. So one of us had to be stateside while he was doing this job. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was a lot of um, reckoning and forgiveness that had to happen, and my way of doing it was to... Uh, 
you know, literally dig out all of the old uh, files of all every Valentine's card he'd ever sent me, every email he'd ever sent me, every poem he'd ever written me, and um, put together what we had. And that is what's left. Love, love really does transcend. It's a cliche, but love does not die. And that is a really important theme in this book, that love, whatever your challenges, doesn't, does not go away. I, I, you know, obviously, that's really well said. And I think I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking about you just really have to reaffirm the good stuff because you can get bogged down. I think you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. No matter what your situation, when someone dies suddenly, you're going to find oh, maybe not as dramatic as your mm-hmm. uh, situation, but you're going to find all kinds of perhaps things that you can, one considers secrets and things mm-hmm. you didn't know about your partner or your spouse. Mm-hmm. And you can mm-hmm. really just, you know, focus on just all of that and not be able to, to step back like you did. Like you said, go over all the, the emails, the love letters, the love emails, mm-hmm. um, and that that's really important. Did you do that on mm-hmm. your own or were you, did you do it with a therapist? No, I actually did not go to a therapist. Um, quite honestly, I had no extra energy that first year or more, really, because the epilogue is four years after the uh, the bulk of the book. I I just followed my gut instincts. I did these things when I could. I didn't open those emails and really look at all of that until maybe it was eight or nine months in before I could start to, you know, fully reaffirm the, the, all the good concrete messages I have left in my archive and, what they could, and how they could feed me. So I, I did that, and of course I had the help of friends, and I had good family with me who knew, you know, big parts of the story. But this is a very personal journey. You know, there's the external journey to Dubai, which is foreign territory, and then these, there's the internal journey to the equally foreign territory and through that territory of grief. There are two different foreign lands that I was traversing in this book and in my life. And um, most of that was uh, on my own, I would say. Well, it sounds like you have a really good sense of timing because I'm thinking about I'm going back to the emails again because I think people mm-hmm. oftentimes react quickly and you know mm-hmm. for instance they're so angry given the situation you were in and mm-hmm. would uh, delete mm-hmm. all the emails and then when oh. the time it, you know <laughs> oh, seven God. or eight months later yes now mm-hmm. I'm ready to to read them and you know there uh-huh. are probably many other instances of things that you did but when you're going mm-hmm. through the grief processes you're talking about mm-hmm. like it, mm-hmm. it's really important to do mm-hmm. things in your own time when it works for mm-hmm. you. It doesn't it mm-hmm. have to all be done at once. I, I don't know if that makes sense. but Well, I, yeah. yes, and I will say, and I do want the listeners to understand that the predominant feelings that I had were grief, were tremen- the tremendous loss of this man that I loved so dearly. And it was way, it, it way outweighed the anger at what he may or may not have done. It was, that was the predominant feeling. And so I, yes, of course, those feelings can be in conflict. And yes, there was anger and I was, you know, I was 
pissed off, and I was I was upset that he had left me with all this business mess, and you know it wasn't just about his personal stuff; it was all this business stuff I had to deal with. I had to become him, you know, in 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 really in legally in order to um, tie it all up. So so there was a lot to deal with, but the predominant thing was, you know, you, the bigger the love, the bigger the loss. And the greater the love, the greater the grief. So I, I think that was really what I was dealing with most of the time, more than uh, even anger. We have a couple minutes left, and I mm-hmm. just want to. So I want to just, and, and, and maybe this is a whole other, <laughs> more than a couple minutes left to answer the question. But I was thinking about your son because he wasn't a baby. He wasn't, uh, you know, he was in mm-hmm. college. I mean, he was uh, mm-hmm. an adult, and how that affected him in. In, in terms of, well, obviously his father dying, but all of this mm-hmm. and how much you shared with him or didn't, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, no, Ollie, Ollie was 21, and um, everything, he, he knew everything, and he gave his blessing for this book. Uh, and he understood, in some ways, he understood his father in a more balanced way than I did. He understood that his dad was... Uh, in in some ways, in over his head in Dubai, hence the acting out in various ways. And uh, Ollie is a very level-headed, very wise young man. He's sort of an old soul. And uh, I really, I'm so lucky, so lucky to have my son, who is obviously, you know, the dearest person in my life. But he was also um, very much a support, of course, devastated by the loss of his father. He was very close to him. Uh, But he was uh, very level-headed and understanding about all of it. And uh, I'm very blessed to have him. Well, it seems to me then, then looking at sort of take, you know, how you grieved, but you have this son who was, you know, describing... Um, this terrific son that you both raised. So that was like a yes. very, yeah. Yes. And, yeah. 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 And he's followed his father into advertising, which he vowed he wasn't going to do, but he's done it. And he's a, <laughs> he's a, he's a writer and, and, and doing very well. Uh, and, and Jerry would be so proud, and I am incredibly proud of Oliver in every way as a person and, you know, as a career man, <laughs> all of it. And so okay, fast forward eight years later, you're now mm-hmm. in New York, and can we ask what you're doing right now? Uh, well, I'm about to start working on another book, which I've had another, a couple other books in the offing. Uh, one is a novel, and I'm thinking we're going to go back to that, just plunge into some fiction <laughs> So after such a revealing memoir. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm doing that, and I, you know, I volunteer, and I do all kinds of things. I live in the Hudson Valley and really love it, really love my new life, and that's the happy ending to my book. That's the epilogue to the book, so I can, we can tell people that, that I come out just fine. <laughs> right, so there is a good ending. We've covered quite a yeah. We've covered a lot. I, we haven't obviously covered everything because we want people to go out and, and buy the book, Dying in Dubai, a memoir of marriage, mourning, and the Middle East, Rosalie Bluston. And uh, you can get it at Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. And what about, is there a, a website that we can go to to get more information about the book, about you, and about your next book? Yes, RosaleeBlueston.com, R-O-S-E-L-E-E-B-L-O-O-S-T-O-N.com. 
And it's got everything there, including links to purchase. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great great talking to you. Thank you, Catherine. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Joining me this morning is Lisa Knopp. She's author of Bread, a memoir of hunger. Uh, Lisa is not only the author of Bread, a memoir of hunger, but she's also uh, the author of five collections of essays, um, each of which explores the concepts of place, home, nature, and spirituality. She's a professor of English at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. It's good to be here. Right, Lisa, so this book, Bread, uh, a memoir of hunger, uh, is about your experience with anorexia when you were a teenager and now as a middle-aged person, uh, really your relationship with, with food and all that entails. So um, let's start because it said when you were 54 years old, you realized that um, you had sort of, you had not, you had, I guess, felt like you had conquered your eating disorder when you were younger, when you were an adolescent, but now here, 54, uh, here, you're again faced with this uh, you describe it as a severe food-restricting disorder. Um, middle-aged, don't think of middle-aged women as suffering from that, right? or at least uh, most people don't. So let's start with um, what happened. Um, yeah. Okay, um, you're, you're right. Most people don't think of uh, middle-aged and older women as as having um, problems with eating disorders and disordered eating. Um, We think of teenagers and women in their early 20s, and indeed, 
they do suffer from it, but so do older people and, and so do men and so do children. Um, when I was um, 54, a problem that I thought was long in my past, like over a quarter of a century, um, came back and I started restricting what I ate when I ate, how I ate, and started losing weight. Um, in fact, my weight dropped to a number I haven't seen since seventh grade. And um, I would have told you that I was doing this because I had some food sensitivities and some digestive problems, and you know, I was just trying to make myself healthier. I had all kinds of ways to justify this to myself. And it was my 20-year-old daughter who, who said, you know, if you don't start eating more, you're going to die. She said, this, this has got to be an eating disorder or something. And she did um, awaken me to what was going on. And um, I started writing an essay that eventually became this book, Bread, and, and started researching eating disorders and disordered eating and found that um, I wasn't alone. There are... A lot of us out there, a lot of middle-aged women who, oh, in responses to whatever might be going on in their life that is difficult, they start restricting or binging or binging and purging or spending way too many hours a day at the gym or um, going on crazy food regimens where they might drop an entire food group and, um, like me, argue that they're doing it for health reasons. Um, we're also so I have to ask you, what happened, and do you think that this is common, in, more common, I guess, in women who have had an eating disorder, let's say, in adolescence, or can this just, you know, one who, uh, you've never had it, a woman, has never had an eating disorder before, and then all of a sudden middle age, with all the stuff that happens at middle age, which, pro- which, I mean, obviously you talk about, but it's kind of the similar things that happen in adolescence, too, because your body changes, you know, you have yeah. a lot of, it's a different context, but you, the major changes, emotional and social and business and all of those kinds of things. Uh, so I guess those are two questions. I, well, should, yeah, and, yeah, and very insightful points there. Um, first of all, the, the older women with eating disorders and disordered eating, um, three types, um, those who had it um, as a young woman and maybe... Um, were treated or got through it somehow and then have a long period of remission and then it comes back. There are people with chronic problems who've had it all their life and then there are women for whom it is something new and they've never had it before. Um, and, and you're correct that there are many similar things between adolescence and midlife um, and which accounts for Well, there are similarities and differences, of course, um, in eating disorder when you're 15 and 54, but I think what is generally true is that younger women, teenagers, um, what the trauma or difficulty they may be dealing with tends to be in their birth family, and for older people like me, it's in the family that you created. Like, my children left home, my father was dead, um... I had some friends who left, and I was getting older. You know, those bodily changes and that you're talking about and having to kind of move into new terrain and your thinking um, related to all of that. So, so there are some um, similarities there between those two times in life. 
what would you go? Is it all about loss? I mean, because as we get older, we have more and more losses to right. build up and pile up in some cases, right? And so you get to be 54 and you're dealing with all of these losses that most people yeah. have to deal with. And that that's what triggers, I guess the word triggers, this behavior. Yeah, uh, the research I've done, and, and I need to emphasize that I'm not an expert. I don't, I'm not a medical person. I don't have a background in psychology or um, social work or anything. Um, my expertise comes from having lived this and, and trying to figure out why. But um, it seems that loss is a real motivator among um, middle-aged and older women. Um, it was for me, and when I look at my friends who are... Also experiencing this, yeah, loss is the motivator. Um, you know, how to deal with something as important as, as your children leaving home as they're supposed to. Um, when you've spent maybe 20, 25 years of your life being primarily defined as, as a parent. Um, that's not a hole in your life that can quickly and easily be filled in. So when it began to happen, when you took your daughter, your 20-year-old daughter, to say, hey, Mom, you're, you're just, you need to do something. You're, you're going to die. You're, you're, I mean, that right. was, yeah. Was that the point where you were able to sit back and, and, and say, oh, my God, yeah, I need to do something? Or did you have any, or were you had any kind of awareness, self-awareness before that? Or did you need her to say that? And, and then what happened? Um, I, I couldn't see anything. And when she said that to me... Um, I did not have the oh my god moment. It was like, huh, really? Um, people with eating disorders and disordered eating are pretty good at denying things. In fact, that's why it's it's so hard to recover from this kind of stuff. Um, I listened to her. I didn't totally believe her. I will say that. But but her comment is what opened the door. And I started thinking about it more and saying, yeah, there's some things that don't make sense here. I'm doing this because I have some food allergies, but they're not getting better, and so I'm restricting more. And yet there was some, I could see that there was some craziness going on. Um, and then when I started researching, things became a lot clearer to me. Um, reading about other women like myself, and then um, just understanding um, eating my, my own restricting better. There, there's a writer who said that um, she compared eating disorders to a gun. She said that genetics build the gun, environment loads it, and trauma pulls the trigger. So you need to have all three of those for that gun to go off, the genetics, the environmental forces, and then some trauma that pulls the trigger. And um, that was a very helpful thing to think about, too. In fact, um, that's how my research broke down. I was looking at the genetics and the biochemistry. I was looking at the environmental influences. And then what specifically was my trauma? And um, that really helped me to analyze what was happening. It also helped me to see that um, if there is a genetic um, kind of a brain chemistry component to this, I can't help that. Um, but I can fight some of the destructive environmental influences and I can try to change whatever that trauma is that 
pulls the trigger on my particular set of circumstances. Well, it, it would seem to me, Lisa, that that would fit into your personality. You're a professor, you're an yeah. academic, so now here you have kind of a whole, I don't know if you would call it a paradigm, which is a good thing. Like, you can really take a look at it from all different perspectives and see what yeah. you do have control over. What about, though, the genetics? Is there a genetic component, let's say, that you can trace in your family, i.e. mother, siblings, sisters, brothers, who have um, suffered similarly? Sort of. Um, again, I'm not an expert, but I know that my mother and my her mother were yo-yo dieters. And um, once I left home, I never knew what size they were going to be when I came home again. You know, were they going to be thin? Were they going to be, you know, pretty well padded? Their weight would change substantially. And um, and then the um, kind of anxious, perfectionist personality type goes along with this. And my father, that was, that was my father. Um, he was, he was pretty highly strung and in many ways I'm like him. So, um, you know, those, those personality traits, I, I do think, uh, we're born with those and, um, they can be turned to good things. Perfectionism can be turned into something very good or, or very destructive. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I do believe there is that in my family. Um, and, yeah, that is certainly an important piece of it. Yeah, so that, was a, that is a contributing factor. What about, and then I, what about cultural factors? I mean, how does oh that fit goodness. into, yeah. <laughs> these, these are so fascinating. What everybody knows about is um, are the industries, are the messages we get from the fashion and the, the diet and the beauty industry that we all need to be thin and look like certain people who, um, you know, movie stars, um, other performers. Most people are aware of that cultural influence, but there are many others. One that um, interests me a lot is the effect of hyper-consumerism on um, how we eat and how we view our bodies, how we view ourselves. I think um, it's interesting that um, eating disorders really started to gain momentum in the 60s, which is when we also became very consumer-oriented in this culture. You know, the post-World War II... um, Prosperity and people started buying more and more and more stuff, um, a lot of which they really didn't need. And, um, and, and that has only increased in the past half century. And we get messages that, you know, if you're a little bit sad, you should just maybe go buy yourself a new pair of shoes or, um, makeup. <laughs> Excuse me? Or makeup, or clothes, or, or, or clothes, or uh-huh. you, you could go on a cruise if you're really sad. Um, yeah. and, Put an and addition course, on your these, house. Yeah, 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 yeah. All of these messages, and and our value is determined by what we buy or own, or what we have the power to buy. And so, I, I guess I think of people with eating disorders as the canaries in the coal mine. You have somebody with anorexia, and if we look at this as a metaphor, um, they're refusing to consume. 
They're refusing to take that in. And somebody with bulimia um, will take it in and throw it out, take it in and throw it out. And somebody with binge eating disorder will just consume and consume and consume until they're big and sick. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Some people may say that's crazy to look at these metaphorically, but I can't help but to. And I think there's a point to that, Lisa. And I'm, I'm, as I'm thinking about it, women... 54, we're taking the age 54, menopause, all of these kinds of things yes. that are happening. Very often women, I, mean, I would say in most cases, end up gaining weight and getting right. fat and overweight and overindulging or maybe even not eating too much because your body doesn't metabolize things as well. You right. get too fat. So my question is, at your age, at 54, is there a sense of like feeling purer and better and, and you know, sort yes. of like, I'm not getting into that. I am not going to be the fat person oh, yeah. that other middle-aged women are. Exactly. There's that. Um, yeah, the purity thing is, is important. And also it's a way of gaining power and control at a time in life when this society, um, this very ageist society we live in, um, tells men and women, but especially women, that... Um, you're losing power and relevance and autonomy and disability. And, and so by controlling what I ate, I was pushing back against that. One of the things I, I discovered when um, I really started thinking deeply about why this happened to me again in my 50s, it was a reaction against aging. I don't want to buy the story my culture is telling me about aging. I want to remain powerful, independent, and relevant, and visible. Um, Trying to make yourself as small as possible really isn't working. (laughs) kind of works against the visibility thing, but trying to gain some power does. And so I had to think of just what stories I I did want to live about what it meant to be an aging woman and who would be my role models and... Um, and, and damn it, I'm not going to go away just because I'm older and female. Um, that was a very, very important piece of working through and experiencing some healing these past several years. And then what happens? How do you resolve it? I mean, you have you first you, as you you have to be aware of it, which you obviously yeah. did on, on a personal and also academic. I mean, you researched everything. So at what point did you realize, oh, I have to make a change. I have to do something differently. This is not the way for me to maintain my control or my dignity or my fear. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it was, it was a gradual thing, but one thing I realized I had to do was to bring more people into my life, people who could see me and value me. Um, you know, my children had moved on with their adult lives, and I have wonderful relationships with them, but... You know, they're not, I don't see them every day like I once did. And, you know, with um, changes in my birth family. Um, so I had to very intentionally get more people into my life. And I'll tell you, um, that's hard to do in, in this culture because um, most people are really busy. And if they have free time, they're staring at screens, their phones or their computers or whatever. So, um quite a bit of effort to get a good group of friends. And, and of course, that's not permanent. You know, people move away and change, and, and so it's something that I have to keep adding to. I also made quite a different 
um, quite a shift in what I was writing about. I'd written five books of nature essays about living, growing up living in the center of North America, um, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, parts of Missouri. And I realized that that was not enlivening or interesting to me anymore. And what I really wanted to do was write about myself and other people, and and that's where bread came from. And and I'm going to keep going with this, um, writing about myself in relation with other people. Um, so that was very, very energizing. Um, well, you have to write about what you're passionate about, and, and uh, this absolutely. is what you're right, and, that and that's what you're passionate about. Yeah. I mean, you can't, yeah, just write yeah. for the sake of, of writing stories for other people because this is mm-hmm. is your story. It is, I think you make a good point. I mean, there's such a, a fluidity, which is a good thing. I mean, when you reach middle age, um, um, you mm-hmm. aren't necessarily stuck in living in one town and uh, having to deal with the same people every day because people do come and go and and uh, but yeah. that, but that's a positive too because you can come and go and you can add things that you never maybe weren't able we as a culture weren't able to do say 25 years ago so um, you can be creative about it as you say so that you to re, would you say replace I mean you're talking about the empty nest for instance you don't you have a great relationship with your kids but yeah you're not going to see them as much you're not as involved yeah. as much in their lives so do you replace that with a, and that I don't know if that's the right word but that's no. the concept you know one of the most valuable things I did was um, I um, got a little sister to the Big Brother Big Sister program. And so for the past four years, I've had this child in my life who I see once a week and have really gotten to know well, and and I think I do some valuable things for her, and oh my goodness, she does valuable things for me. So that's not replacing my kids, but it's putting another person, another relationship in that time um, that they once took where I can be valuable and useful to that person. Isn't there a piece to that? It's also a young person who needs you. Not exactly, yes. obviously, not in the same way as your own children, but different. Right. Say, is having a girlfriend. That's another kind of a relation or a new girlfriend. It um, is, and this is a chance to to mentor somebody. Yeah, yeah. So, where would you say you are right now, emotionally, spiritually, with all of this? Um, with still working on it, still yeah. working on it, um, and 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 I hope that is always going to be the case. I I, my, you know, in terms of the eating, my weight is stable. I'm well nourished and have been for several years now. Um, but I know that when things get tough, you know, I still have thoughts. Well, I'm just not going to eat very much. I could go back to that. I don't think I will, but what I'm saying is those thoughts don't go away. And some of the, you know, perfectionistic thinking, some of, some of the sadness about life changes, um, those, those persist. Um, the, the takeaway for this book, whoever reads it, whether they have problems with food or they're just interested in maybe reading um, what I, I think is a spiritual autobiography and illness narrative... I want people I, I want people to ask what they're truly hungry for 
And then to be very fearless in how they answer that because it may not be food. It may be you're hungry for companionship or solitude or prayer or meaningful work or a chance to serve other people. What are you truly hungry for? And then go and out that and is, you know, we have 30 seconds left. I hate to cut you off, but, you know, that's just, okay. that's a great note to, to, what are you truly hungry for? That's a, a good way to, to, to uh, end the show, I think, uh, and to also bread a memoir of hunger, Lisa Knopf. You can get it on Amazon bookstores everywhere. But uh, I think that's a, a good question for us to ask ourselves. And um, I thank you so much for being on the show today. Very re- Thank you, Catherine, and yeah. I enjoyed your questions. You're, you're a careful reader. Thank you. Um, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.